Bonjour and bienvenue, Lulabelle's Francophiles. Je m'appelle Lou, and in this podcast, I will help you to keep your Frenchy vibes fluttering and help you to lose yourself in France without even leaving home. In each episode, we chat about our French experiences with guests who live in Australia, in France, and right around the world, and we share ideas for how to stay connected to the Francophile within you. Alors, aujourd'hui, my guest is someone who some Australian Francophiles will have seen before on the telly on MasterChef some years back. Andrew Pryor is devoted to French food and shares that love through his podcast, Andrew Pryor, Fabulously Delicious, as well as a plethora of recipes on his website and YouTube show. Bienvenue, Little Bells Francophiles, Andrew. Ça va? Oh, ça va bien. Merci. Uh, et toi? Oh, ça va bien aussi. Merci. Oh, now that was a bit informal there. I said et toi. You did. I think I was wrong too. I think I said so, should have said something else. Somebody will pick me up on it. <laughs> We're very informal here. Don't you worry about that. Now, before we start, I have to say mm-hmm. I have made your galette de choufleur or your cauliflower pancakes, and mm. I've never seen those before. I saw yours. So so tellement délicieux. I mean, we all know the famous French recipes like crepes and soup de l'oignon, those sorts of things. But where do you find these lesser-known traditional French recipes? I just had so many French cookbooks. Oh, and yeah. um, being here in France, so many that are in French. Um, yeah. I also love, I don't know if you know or not, but they have letterboxes and phone booths and things like that here in France where people leave books Um, Sometimes in some towns they just leave them on the shelves, uh, window shelves, and they just leave books there for them to be free and you just take them. So whenever I see a French cookbook, I take it. So I might not be able to understand it, but uh, I take it anyway. So um, I just find them, just do lots of research, and I just love French food, you Mm. know. My other half, he loves chilli, and so that's why we moved to France. Yes. I can see. So that's exactly what he would be getting lots of over there. So, Andrew, you have a story with so many twists and turns in it and you've got so much on the go. But I want to take you back a little bit. You clearly have a love and a fascination for France and all things French, including, of course, as you've said, the food. Where did that come from? I don't know. I think... The first time I ever came to France was the first time I'd been overseas, actually. So that was, oh, gosh, when was that? 2006, I think. I was a bit of a late bloomer. Um, You know, (laughs) I lived in Sydney and uh, grew up there and and I never left. I think I maybe went on holidays to Melbourne and I went as far north as Brisbane. I wouldn't go further than that because of the cane toads. Um, (laughs) And so... (laughs) And so I did not traveled and then we went to a trip to Europe and so Hong Kong first and then Paris for two, no, we went to Berlin first and then Paris for two weeks and then I, of course, wanted to do Amsterdam and The Sound of Music after that, so Austria. I just love that two weeks that we had in Paris and France. We did uh, time in Paris and then we went down and explored uh, Nice, I think it was at the time. And we just loved it. And so just sort of had a connection there and always just loved French food. But then... Peter, my husband, um, now husband, um, he was doing his PhD at Monash and 
he did a dual PhD, so it was through Monash and Sciences Po here in Paris. Oh, in Paris. okay. So we came over to do that for a year, and at the time there was no gay marriage, so he wasn't my husband, even though we'd been together at that time, I mm. think, about six, seven years. But because I wasn't married, I couldn't come with him on his visa, oh. Uh, oh, student really? visa, and I was over the age of 33. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I couldn't do the working holiday visa. No. Um, and so I came on a cultural visa, which meant that I wasn't allowed to work right. at that time. So I spent a year, now listen, audience, I know that um, you're going to hate me when I say this, but please don't. Um, I just spent a year walking around Paris. Oh, uh, oh that's tough and- to take. Yeah, it was hard. So what I would do is I would spend the week, the weekdays, whilst Peter was at uni, I would go around and see things and find things and explore. And then on the weekends, I'd go back and I'd take Peter. Um, And so it was really great. And, you know, I mean, I was, I had to make sure that, you know, his dinner was on the table when he came home. Yeah. Um, I was a good husband, well, wasn't husband, but I was a good boyfriend at the time. So I did all that. Yes. So I just fell in love with Paris and France and the French and just in that experience. That does not surprise me at all. I, I would be exactly the same, I think. I know you live in France now, obviously, in the gorgeous Montmorillon. Tell me about life in that little nook of France. Is that in the Nouvelle Aquitaine region? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, Charente Patou uh, and right. Nouveau Aquitaine. Yep, that's right. So it's in a uh, little department called the Vienne, and mm-hmm. well, it's not little, it's quite, quite a good sized department. Yeah. Um, but it's a fabulous town. So it's a city of writing and books, and it's about 6,000 people. We're right in the centre of town. And um, funnily enough, we actually moved on the first day of confinement. We were having a jolly old time travelling around Brittany, waiting for our house to settle that we bought. And um, we were going, like, spending a week at one B&B and another B&B and we packed Lenny, our golden retriever, up in the car and just driving around. Yes. And then, actually, I was in a supermarket and I thought, God, this supermarket's really busy. What's going on there? And uh, it was um, (laughs) Macaron had just announced that tomorrow we're going into confinement for COVID. And so... We thought, oh, it's probably not a good idea to be stuck in Airbnb. Like at that time, it was only supposed to be for eight weeks, I think he first announced, but yeah. it ended up being four months. Um, mm. So we rang up our real estate agent and we came straight here. Uh, so not to the house, but to another house and just drove and arrived on the very first day of confinement. So that was a bit strange because it was sort of like we only saw the same eight people in town every day of that 6,000. It was the same people at the same time. They were all walking their dogs like we were. Um, But, no, it's really lovely. It's got a fabulous old Hotel Dieu that is from the 13th century and it is being renovated at the moment or they're starting to renovate it. Mm. Um, They're turning the chapel into a restaurant And the rest of it is being turned into a hotel and a spa. Um, And it's part of a project, Jean Rubichon. Um, He went to school at this hotel, dear. Yeah. Oh, right. And so before he died, he wanted to do something there. And so he set up a project to do it. And then it fell through just after he passed away and with COVID because of they had some investors that fell through, but now it's started again. His daughter's gotten behind it and has started it again and they're going through with it. So it's uh, the nearest city to us is Poitiers. Yes. And there's a future scope at Poitiers. 
which is oh. sort of, you know, it's sort of like Disneyland for the future. Oh, really? Um, and I've never yeah, heard it's like of a it. business park as well. Yeah, it's really oh. cool, actually. It's all in French, but it's cool. Wow, that's so fabulous. They, they have actually taken, gotten on board with the project. And so they've bought a high school in Poitiers that was abandoned and another couple of buildings. And they're turning that into a school and housing to teach people how to be chefs, how to work in restaurants, how to work in oh. hotels, how to work in spas. Yeah. And then as part of their education, they will do a stage at the hotel that they're building here in Montmorillon. Mm. So that's really exciting. Um, fabulous for me because um, I will be at some stage in the future doing cooking um, immersions here, cooking classes here with my tours. And so people will be able to stay in that hotel at some stage, um, which is really fabulous. Yes, that's wonderful. So have you lived in France before your current move now? Uh, Only that time in 2012. So that was just for uh, 10 months. The year when you wandered around Paris. Yeah, the year when I wandered around Paris. So, no, we've been here now six years. So you were, prior to all of this, a fabulous MasterChef competitor back in, (laughs) was it 2012 or 2013 you were on the show? So 2013, yeah. So tell me how your journey ended up with you being on that, what is really a juggernaut of a show. Did you have a background in food prior to that? No, not at all. I was an insurance broker and I quit that to go to France with Peter. And the plan was actually when we came back that he was going to finish his PhD quickly, which is I don't think something anybody's ever said. So, uh, but that was the plan and we were going to sell up and bring the dogs and move to France. And so I was just sort of looking for jobs. Uh, I come back, I'd been in insurance for 20 odd years. So I was just trying to find something that I could maybe do in France. And I thought oh. that maybe travel claims, I could just, you know, yeah. work in a call centre somewhere, they need English speaking people. Yeah. So I got a job in travel. I was a bit overqualified for it, but I got mm. it. But in that same week that I applied for that, I saw an ad on the telly whilst, whilst I was watching The Bold and the Beautiful. Um, <laughs> which you're which obsessed I've never with, I know. Of. Yes. Yes. And uh, the applications came up for MasterChef and I thought, oh, all right, I'll apply for that. I'd applied like for the very first season. Right. Because I, I loved the English version of the show. Um, yes. I okay. really, really yeah. loved that. Hmm. And so I had just, I'd never seen the Australian, or the, they hadn't made the Australian one, but I played, applied for that first season and I made it all about the food. Yeah. Like my application was just all about food, all about food. And um, and I didn't get in. And yes. I thought, oh, okay, I didn't apply again. And then, um, yeah, after that experience in Paris, I did, I put it in again. And this time I, I made it a little bit more about me and a bit more personality. Yes. Um, put the food in as well, but a bit more personality. And, yeah, I got on and um I remember the time I I found out that um that I was getting on and um I hadn't even told Peter I'd applied. Oh. So I had to sort of break that to him and say, <laughs> you know, I can't maybe um have yeah. applied for Girl Master Chef. But look, it was a I say it's the best thing I've ever done in my life and also the worst thing I've ever done. I really, really loved the whole process of the show, like the filming, um, the judges were amazing, meeting foodie people was just fantastic. I mean, I got to cook food for Maggie Beer and her late daughter and, uh, you know, um, I met uh, Shannon Bennett from Voodoo 
Uh, I got to cook with Curtis Stone. Um, he called me Big Boy, um, which was in <laughs> reference to my weight, apparently, which I didn't kind of like. But anyway, no. let's not get into that. Well, he's so attractive. I don't take it to heart. I kind of, you know, in my mind, I, I sort of feel yeah, that he was but maybe referencing age, that something might not else. Be, it might not be so appropriate in this day and age. Well, no, but you know, that's okay. Um, it's Curtis Stone. Um, he can True. get away with it. He can smile. Um, but I, I also hurt myself on the show. So oh. I I was the only person to be medically retired from MasterChef. So I didn't leave because of my cooking. I left because I got bilateral stress fractures in my knees and I couldn't walk for 10 weeks mm. and I fractured my oh. left kneecap. Oh, my goodness. So apart from the injuries, did MasterChef change you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I first off, I've, I've never worn a T-shirt on television again because I'm too lazy to go to the gym and get rid of the man boobs. But anyway, um, it did change me. I set up a business afterwards, a food tour business in Melbourne. Um, I learnt that I just love the camera. I love doing videos on YouTube. I never thought, like before MasterChef, I was not somebody that liked to get their photo taken oh. um, or anything like that. I, I did have issues uh, around body and all of that sort of stuff. And it's one of the reasons why I do joke about that T-shirt comment because that would have ruined me before MasterChef. If I'd just seen a video of myself running, you know, that would have really not done much to my self-esteem, I would have been, you know, there was times when I was younger, I'd get ready to go out and not even leave and walk past the mirror and get changed eight, nine, ten times and then not even go out. Oh, but and- something about actually being on the telly and just seeing yourself, it really challenged me. Yeah. And I just loved it. Um, I also loved people's reactions to it. Mm. So that was really great as mm. well. So, no, that's what changed me. And, of course, it changed my life. I got into food yeah, and yeah. never looked back. Um, well, I couldn't be a chef because of the way that I hurt myself. The doctor said no. that I'm never going to be able to stand up uh, for, hours uh, for 12 hours in mm. a kitchen working. Mm. But I got into food tourism and the rest mm. is history. So I read about that business that you started up called Queenie's Food Tours. Mm. Tell me about that. Yep. Yeah. So Queenie's Food Tours, I started with an all-day French tour. So I hired a bus. I spent three months. So I was off my feet for 10 weeks whilst MasterChef was filming, like after I left, but it was still filming at this stage um, because it takes like two weeks to film a week's worth of episodes. Oh, really? So I was on the lounge not being able to walk, and by the time – that I healed myself, they were still actually filming. I mean, I oh. went back for the finale and I was healed at that stage. It was oh, it like, takes you know, that long. Yeah, they take that long to do it. So I just spent that 10 weeks just researching, researching, researching what I wanted to do. And then when I decided that I wanted to do food tours, I then spent three months researching that mm-hmm. and um, I just went around Melbourne eating and eating and eating French food. Mm. That was my job. Mm. I didn't go back to insurance. And then after eating about 40 different croissants yep. from croissant places, <laughs> uh, my um, Peter said to me, now you need to actually just do a tour and stop eating croissants. Yeah. Um, and so I did and I set up a, an all-day French tour. It was uh, on a bus and uh, I could have 22 people on that bus. Oh. And 
I wasn't allowed to advertise it. You know, I wasn't allowed to say that um, it was anything to do with MasterChef. The only thing I could say was that Andrew Pryor, contestant on MasterChef, that was it. And so I just, yeah, I started that and I just started as Queenie's Food Tours because it was Melbourne and there was the Queen Victoria Markets. Yes. And I thought it was a cool little name. It had like other connotations yes. and stuff. I, so I just I thought, thought, you know, that. let's go with that. Yeah. And yeah, it was a success. I had 18 people out of the 22 that I could have on that yep. just from setting up a Facebook t- page for it and getting word out there. And, and that was it. And then I started doing walking tours and it ran for four years mm. and in that time, in the latter two and a half, three years, I had tours every day. I had five different types of tours and I ended up having uh, five staff working. Wow. But then, of course, we moved to France. Yes, well, was I was going to ask you that. So the moving forward from MasterChef and Queenie's and you made the big move to France. Was it a difficult decision when you had such a good business going to still drop all of that and make that move or was it really a natural progression that you always knew was going to happen? So because it started with a French tour, people were asking me, saying to me, oh, we'd love to, you know, you to show us France, you yeah. know, because I was telling stories on this bus all day. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter would say that uh, a, going on this tour, specifically the French one when it's on the bus, that it was like the Andrew show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was just, you know, the same bad jokes in every spot and every tour. Um, yeah. I live by that. Um, and so... I came up with the idea of doing a France tour and whilst we were still in Melbourne and I came over and researched and I organised everything from the transport to the hotels to the places that we went to. Everything was included. So Mm -hmm. um, it was, I think, the first tour was 13 nights. It was seven in Paris, two in Dijon and four in Lyon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did cooking classes, we did food tours uh, in, you know, in places we went to amazing restaurants, had amazing experiences. And then um, when we came back from that tour, I we just both said to each other, you know, what are we doing? Like we really, yeah. we wanted to move to France, but you yeah. went on MasterChef. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you just you know, put a bit he of was a fly finish, in that ointment. Yeah, he'd finished the PhD and then started the law degree. Yeah. Um, so we just decided, yeah, we're going to do it. And in hindsight, I should have looked for somebody to do Queenies with or mm. brought on somebody with it because I thought that I could manage it. Mm. Just before we moved to France, my dad passed away from dementia and then about a year later, uh, so we'd been in France for about nine months, eight, Mm. nine months, um, my mum passed away. She'd had a stroke um, two years before. And so it was a lot going on trying to manage the business and staff coming and going um, from Melbourne um, and then that happened. Uh, mm. It was just an, and I also, um, in the same week I went back to bury um, to go to my mum's funeral, mm. I also found my birth mother. Oh. Um, and so I was adopted and I found my birth mother in that same week. Oh so that was goodness. a bit full on. And, yes. um It was just, yeah, it was just sort of, 
it wasn't really planned well. So in so hindsight, I would have been better to get somebody to join in with me in the business. Yeah. Um, so you were trying to manage it, all of that from France when you were yes, over here. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, that's and that tough. was that was just too hard. Yeah, yeah. So I just decided to focus on the tours. Um, yep. So the over so the overseas so coming to France tours. Yeah. Yep. And I started. That's how I started to join the YouTube. Yep. Um, and was doing showing people around Paris, and that was really great. And yeah. then COVID happened, so I pivoted to doing cooking videos and then pivoted to doing the podcast. Yeah. And the podcast has just been amazing. So Yes. Well, I was going to ask you what's going on for you now. What's your latest passion project? So that would be fabulously delicious. Yeah. Um, so it's all about French food and the people that make it, cook it, love it, eat it talk about it, write about yeah. it, anything to do with French food. And so I have get to talk to people and talk to them in the first half of the episode about them and, mm-hmm. you know, what the, their food sort of uh, inspirations, journey, and then, you know, their love of France and French food and if they've lived here, what that experience is like, they're born here, what's it like growing up here, etc. cetera. Um, you know, it's amazing to talk to people. I remember talking to uh, um, Elise uh, Batidio. She's a, a fabulous uh, lady who's in food tourism here in France, mm. French, and we talked to her about the sh- um, uh, Galette Charente. Oh. And, you know, she lived in a town, the way she's just describing it, and it's like she lived in this town in this that has, like, you know, this 13th century chateau oh. in the middle of the town, castle in the oh, middle of the town. And it's like, you know, like we didn't. You didn't get that in Wollongong. No. You know, <laughs> growing up. So it's really fabulous to talk to it's people not, and find out about them and how they, you know, that life. It's not quite the same as just, you know, popping down to Phillip Island, is it? When you're going and you've got a no. chateau, a 13th century chateau in the middle of town, that's yeah. just exquisite. Yeah, that's you walk past that every day to go to school. Next level. You know, next like, level. It's different. Um, and so... Um, and then in the second half, we it's all focused on a specific topic. And mm. so that is a French dish, uh, an ingredient, a technique. And it's been great. I've had the honour of talking to people from just, you know, people mm. that are actually just cooking food for a living. Mm. Um, uh, Chris Fone, who is, uh, has a cafe in Versailles, and mm. then also Chris uh, Fucci, who had a he talked about the fouille, which is like a little known French flatbread from the south oh. of France. Oh. I never knew that the French had a flatbread, but no, they do. I and and up to people like Will Studd and Gabrielle Gatte, I've had on. Isn't and, Gabrielle yeah, lovely? It's just been fantastic. He, yeah, just he gorgeous. He is just the most generous man. So lovely and generous yeah. with his time. Yeah. Yeah. Really good people. So, yeah, no, it's great. I love it. It's uh, so that's what I'm focusing on now and doing some more cooking videos coming soon. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the future with the town um, here is to do cooking classes in the yeah. future combined with a tour. Brilliant. Um, so Brilliant. we'll still be able to show people around France. Do you know, I sometimes wonder when I hear people's stories, and I talk to a lot of people, but I, I wonder whether they have kind of always known their path or they've known their journey and where they would end up. Did you always see your path being one that would take you to France from when you were younger? Interesting that. Um, I, I've always, I love Australia mm. and I love the people that are in Australia, mm. um, my friends and uh, some of my family. Um, but that's a whole <laughs> other podcast. Um, but um, 
Look, I think uh, I have always felt an inkling for living overseas here in Europe. I mm. do feel a little bit more European than I do Australia deep down. Um, so I was really interested to find out that uh, on my birth uh, parent side of things, uh, that my mother's family, you know, she was actually um, conceived in the UK and born in Australia, oh. um, my birth mother. And mm. um, so it was really interesting to hear that, they were from the UK because I, oh. I I do have a bit of a, a sort of I do really like the UK yeah. so and I feel more at home there. Um, yes. You know, in 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 Australia, I go out in the sun, I get sunburned, I'd go red and then I'd go whiter. Um, <laughs> I never tanned. Um, you know, I wasn't into. I made. I always say I've made a deal with the sharks. I don't go into the ocean. They don't come onto the land. No. Um, no, currently, <laughs> currently we're in litigation. I need a new lawyer, actually, if you're interested. I, I, we've got um, we're in litigation because of Sharknado. I'm, I'm not happy with that oh. film at all. Oh. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I do feel a, I felt a little bit more European, but it was yeah. interesting because I never travelled until I was in my 30s. So even oh. in my 20s, I did feel that I wouldn't. I would eventually get to, would, would live somewhere else other than Australia, yeah. Yes, I think um, I was a bit similar like that. I didn't travel until I was in my 30s and I always knew I would but I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hearing you with that. And I think sometimes life gets in the way. You mean to do things yeah. and you, you just get caught up with other things and you don't, you know, you don't get there. And I think that, you know, this is part of Australia. One of the things, and it does... It has been a worry lately, um, but the, the the Australia that I know and love and and appreciate is all about culture and food mm. and other from other people. Mm-hmm. And so, I never looked at somebody. I always looked at somebody, say if they were Vietnamese or Italian um, or Greek, as them being Australian. That mm. they had that heritage yes. and they brought the they brought from their culture, these things that we appreciated and loved mm. and became Australian. Mm. And so um, the I, I I remember, I think it was my first ever girlfriend. Mm. She was, well, didn't last long, um, but uh, she was <laughs> Filipino. And I remember um, her, she, her whole family was living in Australia, like mm. her mum and, and grandmother. But they loved being in Australia and they loved mm. being, you know, they wanted to be you know, seen as Australian. Mm. And I really appreciate that. And I really, I, I really love that part of being multicultural. Mm. Um, I wonder if that is part of our, we've got such a rich Indigenous heritage here in Australia, but then that's overlaid with so many other cultures that maybe that's why we feel comfortable in most places around the world because it all I feels it familiar, is, yeah. you know. We're such yeah, a melting no, pot. I, I think that's exactly it. I think that um, and you notice that when you see, you know, this is a generalisation, mm. like don't take this the wrong way, listeners, but mm. when you do live here in France, when you see other expats from other cultures living here, they don't live quite the same way or come to France for the same reasons as we do as Australians. No. You know, most of us Aussies okay. come to France because we 
want to be here. We want to be experience the culture. Um, you know, you want a rude waiter. Um, <laughs> want to pay your t- you want to pay your expensive taxes. Um, you know, all of these things that are part of France. You come here to experience that. Uh, a lot of Americans come to France for Paris mm. and for the love. Yes. Um, you know, it's this love affair. It's the Emily in Paris story. And not not all Americans, but a lot. And then okay. a lot of English come because it's cheap. It's that, you know, escape yeah. to the country, escape to the chateau. Yeah. You can live cheaply here. Yeah. And uh, we've got a friend whose parents live in Brittany because, you know, it was they sold their house in the UK because they had a mortgage and they could live here without having a mortgage. Yeah. Which is great. Their idea of speaking French is to speak English with a French accent. (laughs) Well, it's not. I love that that's not what you're about. You actually are, you know, immersing yourself brilliantly. And that's a great advertisement for how Aussies are for when we, you know, when we go anywhere in the world, we actually jump on board. You know, I think that's a, a good thing. There's a few questions that I ask every Little Bell's guest. And there's one I'd really like to hear from you after hearing about the fact you had a year of meandering around Paris. How would you describe your perfect French day? Perfect French day. Um, okay, so we'll wake up, take the dogs for a walk mm. um, around town mm. and then get a croissant on the way back mm. uh, from that. That's all good. Have croissant and coffee and then yeah. jump in the car and head off to the neighbouring town, uh, which is uh, Shivini. They have a fabulous market there on yeah. Saturdays. Yeah. So go to the market there. Pop up uh, to the top of the hill. Uh, there's a um, beautiful medieval uh, town at the top of the hill in Chibini and have a nice lunch, a sunny day, a lovely salad. Mm. And um, and then pop back uh, home uh, via there is a, um, a beautiful chateau that you can go and visit just outside of Chibini, um, uh, Chateau Tufu. And you can wander the gardens there and they're really beautiful. And then about five minutes up from there is a nursery where you can go pick fruit from the trees or from the berries and things like that. So pick some strawberries or whatever's in season to make a tart Mm. and uh, then come back and spend the rest of the afternoon cooking dinner while hubby's in the garden. Um, And then having people over for dinner, lovely, we make it a sunny day. Um, a sunny summer's day would be beautiful so that we can have the table outside in the garden yes. um, with the dogs and, uh, you know, just eat, drink, and then uh, before dessert maybe have a swim in the pool um, oh. and then have dessert, drink some more, and then go to bed. It sounds blissful. Oh, that's exactly oh. what I want to be doing tomorrow, just just that. It's exactly <laughs> what you described. Now, Okay, this is one which I'm dying to know from you as well. What is your fave French food to either cook or maybe to order when you're out? Well, okay, well, there's there'd be two. So mm-hmm. the order when we're out, I love escargot. Oh, well, I see. Why? But it's not for the it's not for the snails. It's for that garlic butter sauce. sauce. In actual fact, why can't they just come up with a dish that's just like garlic butter? So it's garlic butter and parsley in a dish. Yes, with like bread to garlic sop butter, it up. And the bread to sop it oh, up, yeah. Wow. But no, like escargot, I do like the snails as well. Um, 
We went to go to a snail farm, actually, on my very first tour in 2015, but unfortunately it flooded and they lost all their snails, like literally the night before we were supposed to visit. So um, I had to improvise and and come up with something else. I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, we went to a goat's cheese place, that's right, and and, uh, did goat's cheese instead of snails. So that was fabulous. Yeah. Um, But to cook at home, um, you can't go past my cockle vial. I love a good cockle vial. Yeah. it was my MasterChef winning dish in the Barossa. I cooked it for Maggie Beer and her daughter, um, then oh. daughter Saskia, and used her, um, uh, late daughter Saskia, her, used her chickens mm. and um, cooked that for 20 people and loved it. And I love to make cockavan. It's just a fantastic dish. Delicious. Um, just delicious. You know, yeah. And uh I do it the French way, not the Julia Child's way. Um, I love Julia Child, but I do have a little bit of an issue with her food now. I mean, I think it's great there's a TV show out about her and everything that she's done for French food in the States and around the world is amazing. But people just need to, I think, remember that these dishes were for a specific time period mm. and for a specific audience. Right. And it was not when we had the internet and we didn't have the way that we, the global economy and things that we have now. Mm. Um, and so I, it's not, some dishes just aren't the same. No. So, um, you know, I say this a lot. I, I talk about this on the podcast a lot when diving into specific dishes and people reference, you know, things like uh, Julia Childs or or any kind of, um, you know, maybe not Gabriel Gatte because that's a, he's a bit uh, he sort of came around in the eighties. But people that were doing French food in the fifties and sixties and seventies, and we see their, these recipes for a non-French audience, they are changed. So Julia doing uh, boiling bacon. Mm. You know, she was boiling bacon for a reason and it was because of what was in the bacon in America at that time for that dish. So you're getting really good bacon now, um, which, you know, to add to your cookbook, which most people are going to do. Yeah. um, You don't need to boil your bacon before, you know, frying it to put in a dish. Um, Yeah. So you just need to look at those sort of things. I think um, I love Julia Childs and I love everything she's done, but you do need to take her recipes and sort of uh, like the idea that you're doing the Julia Julia thing and is sort of all romance and yeah. I suppose there's a context through which we should read those recipes, really, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the same as you know. You nowadays. How many people would get a book? Like I said, like I love these old cookbooks, French cookbooks. Um, that's where I find recipes like the uh, Galette Chauffeur. So how many people would get an old 60s, 70s cookbook and actually make it the exact same way and present it in the exact same way that it was presented then? Yeah, that's right. Most people wouldn't. No. Most people no. have go, okay, well, that's a bit old-fashioned. We'll do it this way. Yeah, yeah. Now, the last question that I often ask is to promote French culture. I'm compiling a bit of a Spotify playlist, but I also encourage everyone to actually purchase the music direct from the artists as well. The music industry can't survive on downloads alone. So do you have a fave French music artist or even a French song or some French, some music sung in French that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I have so many. Um, but look, I'm going to stick with just uh, 
just go with an Australian, actually. Yeah. Is that controversial? No. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to go with Tina Arena because <gasps> she's got fabulous French albums. Oh, she does. And I'm going to go with Set the... Uh, by Tina Arena. So seven V. So I think that translates to seven lives. Way, oui, je pense. Oui, so set oui, V by. And it's from her album Set V. From her album Set V. In 2008. Just so, yeah, so she's actually really huge here in, um, in France. A lot of French people know when you say that you're Australian, um, people will go, oh, you know, Tina Arena. Tina Arena. How and, wonderful. Uh, and if she's listening, if she wants to come to Montmorillon and visit, um, I'd be happy to cook her a taco bun. Oh. I hope she's not vegan. I don't know. I don't know, but, you know, let's put the if you are message vegan, out Tina, there. And... I'll find you a, yeah, a vegan yes. chicken. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, merci beaucoup for your time today, Andrew Pryor. As you would say, it's been just fabulous to connect and have a petit pepotage with you. Merci beaucoup for having me. Um, yes, my motto in life is whatever you do, do it fabulously. Oh. And so you are definitely doing that with your fabulous podcast, sweetie. Oh, you are divine. Thank you so much. This is the Mutual Admiration Society in case anyone's just joined I us. I love it. <laughs> with, with Lulabelle and Andrew Pryor. minutes, we're just going to tell each other what's fabulous How about fabulous each other. That could be a whole other fab- uh, a whole other episode. It could be. Au revoir, Andrew Pryor. Au revoir. Merci beaucoup. Alors, c'est tout et c'est la fin aujourd'hui. That is all for another Ludabelle's Francophiles episode. I hope you're enjoying being transported to France via our podcast chats with some wonderful guests and their French stories. To be notified when new episodes are released, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform or follow Ludabelle's Francophiles on Insta. That's where you will also find lots of my personal French photos as well as some from our Ludabelle's Francophiles guests. For all of the links from today's chat, including the link to listen to Tina Arena's song, head to the Ludabelle's Francophiles website. You will find the website link in the show notes for today's episode or via my link tree on Instagram and go to blog post number 66. Andrew Pryor's details can be found in the Ludabelle's Francophiles blog post 66 as well. Come and join me next time on the Ludabelle's Francophiles and together we can stay connected to one of our fave destinations, France. Au revoir de moi, Louise Prichard. Bonne journée et à bientôt, mes amis.